Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You could also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. Welcome. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are honored that you've chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us here at Quad City Christian Church. I want to welcome all of those who are joining us online, as well as all of those out in Prescott Valley. We are so grateful for all of you today. We are kicking off this brand new series called Beyond Belief, and we're studying through the book of James together. As we start, I want to begin with this bit of a poll question. If you were to guess how many people in your life would say they believe in God? Okay, so that's the poll question. Think about the people in your circle, your family, your friends. How many would say they believe in God? How many of you would say 100% of them believe in God? How many of you would say 90% probably believe in God? How many of you would say 80%? 70? 60? 60? 50-50, less than 50. Okay, notice we have people, uh, your circles are vastly different. We've got everybody, we've got people in every one of those age, or I'm sorry, every one of those percentages, right? Every group is represented here today. Each year since 1944, there's a company called Gallup who does polling, and they ask that question, how many of you believe in God? And what you need to know is that number has plummeted over the last 10 years, okay? They've been doing this from 1944. And in 1944, when this started, it was somewhere around 96%, okay? And for 65 years, from 44 over to 2010, it went up a little bit, came back down a little bit. By the time you get to here, it's at 92%. In 64, I'm sorry, 65 years, it only changed by four percentage points. But since 2010 down to 2022, it went from 92 to 81 it dropped 11 percentage points in the last decade. Now, people look at that data and they, they see it in one of two ways. One would say, hey, 81% is still a large amount of people. And in fact, uh, when you lay us beside the rest of the Western world, we're doing pretty good here in America. 
There are others who look at it and say, man, this is a steep decline, 11. It's, it's over, a, I'm sorry, it's about a point a year. Think about where we're going to be in 15 years. And they're just wringing their hands in worry. But I want to give you a third option as you think about this data. And the third option is to look at it and say, who cares what people say they believe? I know you're a little shocked by that. Sounds crazy. Hear me out. Somewhere in the last hundred years, we have come to believe that someone saying they believe in God is all it takes to get to heaven when you die. Do you believe in God? Yeah, good. Then you're in. Somewhere we've come to believe that just, that just sitting, that God is just sitting in heaven hoping people are going to believe he exists as if somehow he needs our validation. And I get it. I get it because we live in a world where most people only know John 3.16. And if John 3.16 is all you got, it would be easy to come to that belief. The problem is there are 23,144 other verses in the Bible that you have to take into consideration. And what those other verses teach us is that some sort of cognitive assent to the fact that there is a God out there isn't going to save you. Simply affirming that you believe in God like someone might say they believe in Santa or Bigfoot or the Tooth Fairy isn't going to save you. The reality is when it comes to being part of the kingdom of God, we have to get beyond belief. We have to get to a place where what we say we believe actually impacts how we live our lives every day. And nowhere is that truth more evident than in the book of James. So that's why we're going to be studying it over the next several weeks together. We hope you bring your Bible as we launch into this new year. I want us all to take another step beyond belief to a life that actually reflects the beliefs that we hold by the actions that we take. So that's the agenda for this series, and I hope you'll join with us. Let's dive in. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we call a book of the Bible is actually a letter. Many of the books in the New Testament are actually letters. And so this is a letter, and like most ancient letters, they begin with first telling us who is writing this. And we're told that it is James. James is the author of this letter. Now, if you're a Bible person, you might recognize that there are actually several people in the New Testament who go by the name of James. The most famous of which is one of James' disciples, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, part of the inner three. And it would be easy to think that that's this James, the son of Zebedee. But that's not who who's writing this. It's not that James. This isn't son, the son of Zebedee. This is James, the son of Mary and Joseph. Turns out Jesus was not an only child. Je, uh, Mary and Joseph got married after Jesus, and they went on to have several kids. We know of four sons and at least two daughters. Jesus grew up in a big family, and so he had lots of siblings. Or we could rightly say half-siblings. 
okay? And what you should know about Jesus' half-siblings, they were the sons of Mary and Joseph, not Mary and God. So they, they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And how could they? I mean, if you share a bathroom and a bunk bed with someone, it's really hard to think of them as the savior of the world. Do you know what it took for James to come to a place where he believed that Jesus was the Messiah? It actually took him the same thing it would take you to believe that one of your siblings was the Messiah. It took his brother Jesus predicting his own death seeing him be executed by professional murderers, watching his lifeless body be taken from a cross, put in a grave for three days, only to come out later and have breakfast with him. My guess is if your sibling was able to pull that off, you might give him a little bit more uh, credit to thinking he might be the Messiah of the world, okay? That's who's writing this book. But what's interesting to me, is that in his introduction, James does not declare himself to be the brother of Jesus. Like you would think that would go in the, the, the bio, right? Like I would, you want a little street cred, put that on the bio. Jesus is my, my brother, but he doesn't put that in there. Instead of talking about Jesus as his brother, James introduces us to himself by declaring himself a servant of the Lord Jesus. Not a brother of the Lord Jesus, but a servant. He declares himself his servant. The fact is, for James, the fact that, that Jesus was his Lord was more important than Jesus as his brother. So that's who's writing. Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So when you see this word, 12 tribes, uh, it automatically points you to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Uh, they were in 12 tribes. This was a name for the people of God. And James was uh, in Jerusalem. He was a pastor there in Jerusalem, pastoring the people who first came to faith at Pentecost in the days and weeks and months and years after, right there in Jerusalem. And so it was primarily Jewish believers who made up the early church. And so these were the 12 tribes who'd come to faith in Jesus. And James says, but they're no longer in Jerusalem. They've now been scattered. And the question is, why have they been scattered? Well, it happens in Acts chapter six. In Acts chapter six, was the first stoning of a Christian. A guy named Stephen was martyred. And what happened next, we read in Acts 8.1, on that day, the day Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So that's Acts 8. By the time we get to Acts 11, they've gone even further. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So James is writing to these believers who had been scattered because of the persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, it's important to note this persecution took place really close to the launch of the church. Jesus died, we think, somewhere around 33 A.D., most scholars believe that Philip was killed somewhere around 35 to 36 AD. I think 
18, 24, 36 months after Jesus' death. And this letter that James is writing happened about five to seven years after that. In other words, what you have there in your Bible in what we call the book of James is the earliest written message of Christianity in your Bible. It's the oldest manuscript written in the mid-40s AD, less than 15 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. James is writing his first letter to these early believers. And what is the first message that's written to encourage the believers in the early church? What's the first message? Here it is. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I mean, think about that for just a moment. The earliest message to the earliest believers is a message about persevering. Think about that. Just 15 years into the history of Christianity, the first message written down to the believers is, don't quit. I mean, you would hope that there'd be something a little more inspiring and encouraging right out of the blocks, don't you? This is one of the things I love about the Bible. It doesn't tell us what we want to hear. It tells us what we need to hear. And what we need to hear is that you need to persevere. And as long as I am the pastor here, you're gonna keep hearing me pound the drum over and over and over again, pleading with you to persevere. Because scripture makes it clear there is no salvation without perseverance. Hebrews 10.36 puts it as clear as anywhere. You need to persevere so that, this is the causation, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Do you want to receive what he has promised? This is not a rhetorical question. Do you want to receive what he has promised? Then you need to persevere because that's the only way you get it. Jesus himself put it this way. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Like Jesus says, there's gonna be a day and there's gonna be suffering and there's gonna be persecution that comes. And when that happens, most people are gonna fall away. The love of the Lord is gonna grow cold and they are gonna walk away. But the one's who persevere, who stand firm to the end, they will be saved. We have to stand firm to the end. We have to persevere to be saved. Which brings us back to James' crazy opening statement. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Like, this is crazy. Are you kidding me? We are to consider... Trials of many kinds, not just as joy, no, no, as pure joy, pure joy, which means you need to consider your health crisis as joy, consider your child's struggles as joy, consider your failing business as joy, consider your broken marriage as joy, consider your addiction battles as joy, consider your depression symptoms as joy, consider your financial troubles 
as joy. Consider your parents' dementia as joy. Consider your loneliness as joy. Consider the infidelity in your marriage as joy. Consider the car wreck joy. Consider your job loss joy. Consider your estranged child as joy. Consider spiritual warfare as joy. And we could keep going, whatever trials that you could come up with, because it's trials of many kinds, whichever ones you can come up with, you are to consider them not as joy, as pure joy. How crazy is that? I mean, who does that? Is it even possible? Like, are we, are we supposed to be happy every time bad things happen to us? I think the answer is no. No, that's not what he's saying. It's not what we're being called to. The joy comes not from the pain, but from what the pain produces. And what does the pain produce? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In the same way that a woman rejoices in giving birth not because of the pain, but because of what the pain produces. We rejoice in our trials, our suffering, our pain, because of what it produces, and what it produces is perseverance. That's what James is telling us, but he's not the only one who teaches this. Paul put it this way, not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that the suffering produces perseverance. Like, what the writers of Scripture are trying to help us understand is that to get what we need, we have to go through trials. They're trying to give us a different perspective, and, and the logic of it goes like this. The logic is, there is no salvation without perseverance. Jesus already told us that. We already read that. And there is no perseverance without suffering. We just read that twice. To get perseverance, perseverance is produced by suffering. That's what suffering produces. So there's no salvation without perseverance. There's no perseverance without suffering. Therefore, we rejoice in our trials because that is the only way for the perseverance that is required for our salvation to be produced. This is the logic of what Scripture is teaching us. We are not masochists who rejoice in pain, but we are realists who understand that the only way for perseverance to be produced is through the pain of trials. And thus, when those trials come, we rejoice because we know that through them will be produced the one thing we need to be saved. James then adds, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Like there is no shortcut to having a mature and complete faith. The only way you get a mature and complete faith is going through trials that refine your faith. If you've been around here very long, you've heard me say this over and over again. You do not want to stand before the Lord with a faith that has not been tested. Because a faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. You don't know how real your faith is until your faith is all that you have. 
But when you walk through trials and everything else in your life just peels away and all you're left with is this faith that you're clinging to, then you know your faith is real. The faith that has not been tested is a faith that can't be trusted. James continues. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, this is where preaching through the book of James becomes a little chaotic. And frankly, I think he has a little ADD, especially in this first chapter, okay? Because right here in the middle of one thought, he seemingly veers into a whole nother direction, okay? It's like he keys in on one word and then he pivots. Check this out. Verse four says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And that is like a little trigger in his mind. And if anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously. So it's like that he saw that word lack and he just kind of runs a little rabbit trail thinking about wisdom. And so we're gonna... We're going to go down the rabbit trail with him just a little bit, all right? Now, I think it's funny that he starts by asking or by stating, if any of you lacks wisdom. That's funny. Is there anyone among us who doesn't think they lack wisdom? And if you raise your hand, you're giving yourself away. We are all at a wisdom deficit, but there's hope. We are invited to ask for wisdom. And my guess is you have. Like I would venture a guess that the prayer request that you offer up the most is praying for your loved ones, health, people who are dying and sick. And number two on your list is your prayers for wisdom. That would be my guess. We are always praying for wisdom. Wisdom for what to do with our kids, wisdom in our marriage, wisdom in our job, wisdom in our situationship, wisdom when buying a house or wisdom in getting a job. Like like everything in our life, we are always praying for God's wisdom. Like my guess is it's your second most asked for request. And when we're always praying for wisdom, James tells us there's good news. That when we do that, God will give it to us. And I think he gives it to us generously to all without finding fault because he knows we're pretty dumb. He made us, he knows. We need wisdom because we ain't got it. And so he will freely given to us. Now, I think it's important to note that he will give us wisdom. That doesn't mean that he will always give us a direct answer to every situation we're asking about. I think sometimes when we pray for wisdom, what we're actually expecting is perfect clarity. And those two things aren't the same. He will give us wisdom. And I think oftentimes, most often, the wisdom that he gives comes through his word and through his people and through his spirit. It does not come from a voice from heaven that says, take that job and not that one. 
I don't think he does that. But he will give you wisdom if you ask. There is a caveat. There's one caveat. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. If you pray for God's wisdom, you have to pray from a place of believing that not only is there a God, but there's a God who is full of wisdom and who is willing to share it. We're not doubting that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. This idea that floats in our culture, this idea that I'm just going to manifest things into the universe, I'm just going to tap into some kind of aura out here, I'm just going to engage in positive vibes. James says, that person should not expect that they're going to get anything from God. They are people who are like blown and tossed by the wind. They're like a boat in a, in a hurricane without an anchor. Like wherever the wind blows, that's where they're going to go. They have no anchor. Whatever the next fad is, it's going to sweep them away. But we, instead, we must have a heart that is anchored to the Lord and when we pray, we pray in faith, not just believing in God, but believing God. We pray believing that God will do the thing that he said he will do. That's what it means to pray in faith. James then runs down another rabbit trail in verses 9 through 11. But we're not going to follow him on that one because he goes a step too far. Just kidding. Just kidding. We're not going to follow him because he comes back to these very topics later in our letter. And so everything that he talks about here, he addresses more later. So we're going to pick up on those themes in the coming weeks. But I want to go back to verse, or I want to end with verse 12. So here's how he kind of wraps up this little section here. James seems to get back to the original thought where he says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So James brings us back to the original topic, the topic which is you need to persevere because it's only the people who have persevered, who have stood the test that will receive the crown of life. This is the eternal life that he has promised. This is the thing that we all long for. And he says, the people who get it are those who have persevered under trial. That's who gets what he's promised. Over Christmas break, I, for whatever reason, watched a few war movies. Hoorah! And I watched, I watched one that reminded me of the Navy SEALs, okay? Now, for those of you who don't know, the Navy SEALs go through a very difficult, maybe the most difficult training in all of the armed forces called BUDS training. You can look it up. And it lasts a week, and they call it Hell Week. And it is the most excruciating training that you can go through. They are put to the test in every way that you can imagine. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, they are 
uh, deprived of sleep over a week. They get about five hours worth of sleep, very little food, and they are They are pressed into the worst physical conditions that you can imagine, laying on a beach on their back full of the clothes where the surf just washes over them for hours and they can't get up. Like, it is the worst possible training that you could imagine. And the whole time, the instructors are yelling at them and screaming at them and telling them, you should just quit. You should just walk away. This isn't for you. You don't have what it takes to do this. They're trying to weed out all of the weak. And they keep nearby a bell. And at any point during the training, any candidate for SEALs, for the Navy SEALs, can walk over to that bell and ring it three times. Ding, ding, ding. And when they do, their suffering stops. They can walk away. They can go home and take a hot shower and put on dry clothes and take a nap and get something to eat. They can go back to a comfortable way of life. They don't have to go through the pain anymore. And some people quit without much suffering. Others will endure for a little while, but eventually give up. And then they ring the bell and they walk away. And their suffering is over. But so is their chance to become a Navy SEAL. If you ring the bell, if you don't persevere, if you don't finish the training, you don't get to be a Navy SEAL. And here's, here's what it reminded me of. It reminded me that following Jesus is not going to be easy. It's hard and it's going to get harder. I read that somewhere. And if you're doing it right, you are going to suffer. If you aren't in a trial now, just know it's on its way. And chances are you're going to be tempted to quit at some point. And you will probably have people in your life who tell you to quit. Why are you putting yourself through that? Why do you go through this pain? You could just walk away and your life would be easier. Now, it doesn't mean that when you punt your faith, all of your trials stop, all of your suffering ceases. That's not how this life works. But as we'll learn next week in what scripture teaches over and over again, there is a level of pain and suffering that is only for believers, is only for followers of Jesus. There's an extra layer of suffering in this world that comes to those who follow Jesus. And what the world is going to tell you is you could save yourself all of that pain if you would just walk away and become like the world instead of becoming like Jesus. You can do that, but you just need to know that if you do, you don't get to be a child of God. If you ring the bell and you walk away, you're walking away from what he promised to those who love him. Like, notice this. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that he, that the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
Notice it does not say what he has promised to those he loves. That's not the promise. He didn't promise it to those he loves because we know John 3, 16 says he loves the world. He loves everybody. The promise isn't for those he loves. The promise is for those who love him. And so when people say, well, God loves me. Well, God loves me. We're fine. Doesn't matter how I live. God loves me. I say to them, yes, he does. But that's not the issue. The question is, do you love him? Do you love him? Because that's who the promise is for. That's who the crown of life is for. It's for those who love him who love him enough to stay, who love him enough to persevere, who love him enough not to quit when things get hard, who love him more than the comfort of their own circumstances. The question isn't, does God love you? The question is, do you love him? So here's my plea. Don't ring the bell. Don't tap out. Don't wave the white flag. Don't quit. Determine now you're going to persevere no matter what comes. And let me add this. The greatest weapon that we have to fight the urge to quit is having people around us. Like when they're doing the SEAL training, they have a team. They're assigned to a team and they're going through these terrible drills that they have to do. And maybe one of the people can't hold the boat over their head any longer. So the one who stands beside them has to bear that weight for them and hold it up a little higher. And when one of them is about ready to quit, it's their teammates who say, no, don't walk away. Get back here. We can do this. Let's stay in this together. Don't quit. It's their team. It's amazing how much suffering we can endure when we aren't suffering alone. That's why you always do better at the gym when you have people there with you. And it's amazing how fast we'll quit when the pain comes if we're there by ourselves. And one of the things that I've noticed in my 25 years of ministry is oftentimes the first step, the first step someone takes out of the faith is the first step out of their community of faith. They start by walking away from their community. And that becomes the first step to walking away from Christ. We need each other to endure. And you don't have to do it alone. That's why we have a church. And you need to find some people who will spur you on when you want to quit. Because following Jesus is hard and it's going to get harder. It's going to be the most difficult thing you ever do, but the pain is temporary. But the crown of life is eternal. So don't quit. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would, through your spirit, awaken in us a perseverance that we determine that no matter what this life throws at us, it It will not change our love and devotion to you. So 
So I pray that you would surround us, put people in our lives, and may we be people for other people's lives that encourage and spur each other on so that when we walk across the finish line, we get to walk across together. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.